now? Okay, well, if you missed all that, it was, you know, pointless. Um, <laughs> but I've unwisely decided, uh, volunteered to coach my son's basketball team, third grade, third graders for Advent, and, uh, um, you know, we're 0-2 as of yesterday. Uh, lesson, I had these sort of dreams, you know, like these coaching movies where you take this motley crew of kids and sort of shape them into something profound and... You know, go out there and, well, we, we just seem to keep losing. Um, so I'm, I'm, du- I'm duly hu- humbled this morning, which is a nice sort of entree into the book of Job. I just finished um, two weeks intensive te- teaching at Beeson on the history of interpretation um, with some students, eight to noon for ten days straight. Uh, it was kind of intense. We, we started in the early church, uh, went to Luther and Calvin, and then ended our, our time together looking at Karl Barth and Rudolf Bultmann. It was, it was a good, it was a good couple of weeks together. But the last reading that we did was, um, Bart's reading on Job, which was in the latter part of his church dogmatics. And I know this, that might be foreign language, but I, as I was working through that, I thought, I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to think out loud a little bit about this reading with the folks at Advent. So this is my opportunity. To do that, so let me say a few things about Job as we hop in. Um, Job is a beast of a book. Uh, have any of you? I'm just curious. Any of you done a Bible study on Job before? Um, so you've sort of gotten into the book of Job before. I mean, it's it's a beast. I I think in my own experience with the book, I've primarily remembered sermons on Job that tend to focus on either the first two chapters or the last chapter. You know, this is Job at his best, right? I mean, here we get to see Job. Um, I like to maybe refer to him as Braveheart Job, right? I mean, this is Job under the intense reality of human suffering. We'll talk about that. Um, who comes off looking really very good. Um, he's the righteous sufferer. He's faithful in the middle of, of, of just a deep calamity. And so we know the Job of chapters 1 to 2 and then the Job of chapter 42 where God meets him and we're going to talk about that before the morning is over. Um, but there's a big chunk of Job there in the middle. Uh, chapters 3 all the way through chapters, um, I think it's all, all the way to chapter 30, right, or 31. That's a different sort of setting with Job. And honestly, um, any kind of easy formulation about how to relate those two book parts of the book of Job, to my mind, betray a simple answer. I don't think a simple answer can be given um, to the portrait of Job that we have in front of us in the first two chapters, in the middle part, and then at the end. I think we're forced into something to wrestle with the reality of human suffering and the reality of human suffering that's lived in the presence of God. And that's where I think, for me at least, um, Bart helps to hold my hand um, to get a sense of what of what's going on. Um, another thing about Job, just to kind of give us some context here... Um, there's no mention anywhere in the book of Job about the date of Job, when it was written, who wrote the book of Job. I mean, you think about these, um, these kinds of questions that we want to raise whenever we read any book, especially books of the Bible. I think some of this has been pressed too far, but that's another topic. Now, but you think about these kind of questions that we raise. When was the book written? Who was it written by? Uh, what was the original context for it being written? Uh, one of my favorite commentaries on the book of Galatians, and I disagree with this, but against another sort of thing. But he says very clearly, we only understand Paul in the book of Galatians insofar as we understand Paul's opponents that he's engaging. Well, as I tell my students, I mean, 
Understanding who Paul's opponents are in Galatia is only one or two doctoral dissertations away from being completely rethought, right? So that means that our understanding of the book of Galatians is kind of always in flux if we have to allow a reconstruction behind it to become the primary means by which we understand a book. Job just isn't going to allow it. When was Job written? Some argue vociferously that Job is an ancient book because it has ancient language in it in the Hebrew. Others argued that that ancient form was actually a kind of literary ploy that made it look old, even though it wasn't really old. It was actually much younger. I mean, the, both, I, mean I, I don't know how you feel about good argumentation. Sometimes the view that I take on things is the last good argument that I heard, right? <laughs> you know what? That makes a lot of sense. That's my view. Actually, you know what? That makes a lot of sense. That's my view now, right? Um, and so with Job, uh, really I think it could go multiple ways. Whether it was written very old, whether it was written in the exile during Israel's exile, whether it was written during the post-exile. Matter of fact, one reader um, who teaches at Duke, someone asked me about her before uh, uh, our thing. Ellen Davis is her name, has argued that the book of Job is actually a kind of picture of suffering Israel in exile. And while that's a fascinating and interesting reading that would be worth pursuing, the fact of the matter is Job itself and the book that we have before us in our canon just doesn't allow for that kind of one-to-one correspondence. It just doesn't allow it. Job is a beast. It's its own thing. Now, Job is not an Israelite. He's from where? Uz. <laughs> I don't know where that is, right? He's from the east. He's from Uz. So here we have someone who's a non-Israelite, who's righteous in the sight of God, He's a non-Israelite. He's righteous in the sight of God. How, do, how, do, how did Job even know who God was? How does Job know who God is? How does Job know that the God who he is worshiping is the God of Israel? How does Job know any of that? Do you know what the Bible tells us about that? Zilcho, right? So we're left with a kind of force in front of us with the book of Job that's tyrannical, that keeps pressing us not to allow questions that we might have about Job, legitimate questions to try to make sense of this book, won't allow us to let those questions come into center play because the book's just not going to answer them. The book is interested in is interested in something else. So what is it that I think Bard is after and what I think maybe why he's such a good reader of Job? A couple of points this morning, and maybe we'll have some time for some repartee back and forth. Number one, number one, the freedom of God and the freedom of Job, right? This is in chapters 1 to 2 of Job. The freedom of God and the freedom of Job. You know the story, right? Satan comes into Job's, into God's chamber, into God's, into God's courtroom, into his throne room, and he has a kind of cosmic challenge with God. Um, have you considered, um, he, he says, you know, you're, you're this person, Job, and the part about that story that always bothers me the most, frankly, and there's a lot to be bothered about with Job, and there's a lot of resolution that will not happen for you with Job. I just hope you understand that we're not, we're, we will not walk away in 30 minutes with it all sort of neatly tied up. It's, just, it's not going to happen. But the fact of the matter is God brings Job's name up first. This is how the narrative goes. Have you considered my servant Job? God brings it up which gives us a kind of entrance into the rest of the book that we're going to see that comes before us. And that is, this book is about God and our relationship to God. Um, 
I'll talk about this in a little bit and I'll refer to it again, but we see Satan as a kind of interesting character in these first two chapters. He shows up the first time and he says, if you consider your servant, he talks about Job. He says, the only reason he's righteous is because look how you blessed him. I mean, he's financially prosperous. Look at his children. He's got a happy home. He said, strike all the way and he'll curse you. So God does that. And Job remains faithful. And then Satan comes back again and he says, well, you know, Hit his body, all right? He's just, he's just a kind of megalomaniac. He's self-absorbed. He's not, he's not, that, that didn't really hurt him what happened to those that he loves. Go after Job himself. We see Job by the fire, scraping off his boils, right? Saying these profound statements. Though he, um, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Satan's a pretty important character in the first two chapters. Do you know how often we see Satan after chapters 1 and 2? Never again. I'll come back to that. Satan doesn't show up again in the rest of the book. So this is a story about God and the freedom of God and the freedom of Job who reacts in his relationship with the living God. God is free. So whatever you make of God, whatever I make of God, whatever complaints that we might lodge against Him, God is free. Now, the term that we often use is the term sovereignty. That gets tossed around a lot. God is in control. God is sovereign. Now, I'll just lay my cards out on the table. I'm very happy with that term. I believe in that term. But I do think sometimes the term sovereignty can be used in such a way that emphasizes the willing and the choosing side of God to the exclusion of His other character traits. I'm I'm happy with sovereignty. I believe that God is in control. But I do think I prefer the term freedom. God is free. That means that God is not in any way constrained by anything outside of Himself. Or to put it in other terms, God is utterly distinct from you and from me. God is not like you, and God is not like me. And this is the part, frankly, that frightens us so much. God's not like us. He's not always understandable, which is going to become Job's primary problem with God. I don't understand you anymore. And this is specifically really what we wish God would be like. We wish God would be like us. We wish God would be rather predictable, right? And we think about the relationships that we get into with the people that we love. What do, I don't know about you, but I kind of value predictability, right? On one level. Just going to know, I mean, what's half the game in relationships? Just showing up, right? You know, I like to predict that that's going to be the case, that my wife's going to be there tomorrow morning. I'm going to be there too. Now, if she's, look what she's got to look at. I feel badly for her, but, but I'm going to be there, right? There's a certain kind of predictability. But God is He's free. He's not like us. He's not bound by any constraint outside of himself. And this means in the case of Job that God is free to act in his relationship with Job in a way that befuddles even Job. In ways that are different or even seemingly contrary to how Job has come to know God before. I had my life one time, Job is going to say in due course. I had my life with its share of woes and with its share of concerns. But these were the normal warp and woof of life. But this, this is a personal holocaust. But what we see in Job 1 and 2 is that Job is free too. He's free to receive both good and evil from the hand of God. 
He is free in that he finds freedom in the freedom of God. That is a completely different concept of freedom than I think what we tend to think by nature. Freedom within, I think, our own particular construct of freedom is individual autonomy. The soul self. I am an island. I am a rock. I get to choose, right? So that my choosing becomes identical with my, with my freedom. And here we see that Job's true freedom, his true freedom is found in his recognition of the freedom of God. He finds himself free in God. Should we not receive good from the hand of the Lord, says Job, and not evil in response to his wife when she says, Job, you look awful. Just curse God and die. Or the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be his name. Job's freedom and his role as a witness to Jesus, which is where we're going this morning, is found in locating his freedom in the freedom of God. All right, you're going to shift into fourth gear, and then we'll go back into third in a second. I want to read you a quote from Bart. I don't really like being read to, um, but sorry. Um, Job would not be Job, says Bart, if he were not free to receive both evil and good from God. This implies that he fears and loves the free God as such, that in his conduct towards him, he has regard to his free disposing, that his conduct is free in consequence, that it is free and gratuitous service of God, grounded in a fear and love of God which are decisively concerned only about God himself and not his gifts. End quote. I mean, here is Job at the end of chapter 2 saying, in effect, I will, I will relinquish my own freedom and I will find my genuine freedom, my genuine joy, my genuine purpose, my genuine identity in God Himself and in God's decisions toward me. That's where my freedom is found. And I look at that, I don't know if you look at that, and it says at the end of Job 2, and in all of this, Job did not sin with his mouth. I mean, I look at that and I go, I'm just blown away. I'm blown away by the resilience of that kind of faithfulness in the midst of such utter and personal catastrophe. I'm blown away by it. But here's where I want to transition. I'm thankful. Now, this is me, right? So this, I'm out of the Bible now. This is me just giving, this is my opinion, okay? I'm thankful, frankly, that Job is not only the Job that we find in chapters 1 and 2, but he's also the Job that we find in the chapters that come after. The resilience of Job's faith certainly moves me, as I imagine it moves you. And it's most of the sermons that I've heard on it. that provides for me an example of true freedom found in the freedom of God alone. Not in the freedom from suffering, something that the ancient philosophers used to encourage people to avoid suffering by avoid loving. Right? In other words, detach yourself from anything that might ultimately hurt you. So don't commit yourself too much to anything to avoid pain in your life. That's not Job. Job is suffering. He's not a stoic. And I'm blown away by it. But the Job on offer in chapters 3 through 31, the material of the heart of the book, well, Job's not the same Job anymore. The Job that doesn't sin with his mouth. In fact, Job sins with his mouth. So when we move into chapters 3 to 31, I find encouragement. I don't know if you do. Maybe it's just I need this kind of encouragement myself. 
But I see that Job is both resilient and Job is brittle at the same time. He is faithful and he is confused at the same time. He is someone that is hoping and trusting and he is someone who is devastated both at the same time. I've mentioned it to you before. I'll mention it again. It's why I like old Cranmer and his burning right hand. If you've ever been to the dome at Beeson Divinity School, there's Cranmer up there in the dome with his hand on fire. Why? Well, because the resilience of his commitment to something kind of fell through at a moment. And then he began to raise some questions. And I, I, I can see that. I see that in a book like Job as well. So when we move from Job 1 to 2, we see resilient Job move into questioning Job, concerned Job, angry Job. Now, let me. this is the second point. What's Job's problem? Job's problem is God. It's God. So as mentioned already, Job's deep problem was with God Himself. And it should be said, and I want to emphasize this, that Job is right in this regard. Job's frustration, or at least his understanding of the source of his trouble, was right. And this is why Job as a book is meat and potatoes for Christian living and Christian faith. I mean, you and I know the story of the book. Satan comes in, he talks to God. But after chapters 1 and 2, as I've already mentioned, Satan is never mentioned again. Let me put it to you this way. This might trouble you, but Satan is a pawn in God's divine plan. He's a pawn. He's certainly to be respected, but he's a pawn. And he's being used here for the divine plan as well. And after chapters 1 and 2, the setup, now Satan is gone. We'll never hear Job. This is the one part that both Job and his friends and God all get right in this book. And that is, none of them ever questioned that the source of Job's trouble was God Himself. Not one of them questioned that. And in that, they are all in accord and they're all right. The problem of his hurt, the source of his hurt, is God. Bart says, according to his speeches, that's when we get into this part in 3 and following, his true sorrow and all his sorrows, and therefore the primary subject of his complaint, consists in the conjunction of his profound knowledge that in what has happened and what has come to, he has to do with God. That's his knowledge. This is God that's behind this. And number two, his no less profound ignorance for how far he himself has to do with God. What do we see in chapters 3 through 30 in Job? We see Job filled with knowledge and filled with ignorance at the same time. I kind of feel like, I don't know if you feel this way, it's like looking in a mirror. Knowledge and ignorance all rolled into one. And here's Job. Knowledge and ignorance all rolled into one. God is behind this, and yet ignorant at the same time of the, of the identity of the God with whom he's engaging. So Job's tirades of anger against God, while properly directed, reveal his ignorance and knowledge at the same time, and it comes into a collision course, head-on, meeting with one another in these chapters. You know what the problem is? Job doesn't understand God anymore. He doesn't recognize God anymore. He has thus encountered him in a form, Bart says, in which he has been recognized. But now he is unrecognizable to Job anymore. And this is the ignorance and the moment of crisis that Job encounters that creates an enormous amount of angst for him. Deep angst, deep trouble. 
So what do we see in Job here? We see that Job's relationship with God is a dynamic one. It's a real relationship. It's not static. It's not fixed. It's dynamic. It's an encounter again and again with the, with the real God. And, and I'm, I, this is a sidebar, okay? So this is, you know, um, a few buckets of... Receive this with a few buckets of salt, okay? But I don't know how, where you are in this. But I'm coming to the place, and I may feel differently about this in three or four or ten years. But I'm coming to the place where my admiration for Job is equal in both parts of the book. In both parts. Now, frankly, chapters 1 and 2 is the kind of movie material that we all really like to see in people's Christian faith. Unmovable. Stalwarts of the faith. You cannot knock them down. The tsunami comes and they're just the kind of, you know, a strong tree that stands in the middle of all the difficulties of life. I admire that. I admire that. But what do we see Job like in the next few chapters as well, really the material heart of the whole book. We see Job, and Bark makes this connection, like Jacob at the river Jabak, wrestling with God till the break of day. And when he wrestles with God to the break of day, God then says, you are a true Israelite. In this regard, what we see Job doing in the book of Job is acting like a true Israelite. Lodging his complaint against God. Having the bravery and the courage and the authorization that I think we find in the Bible itself to say things to God in in our confused moments that might actually trouble us. That might actually make us grow red in the cheek and hot under the collar if it was a testimony time in church. I don't think you guys... We don't do that, but I grew up doing that. Maybe it would make us nervous if someone got up and began to talk like Job. I want my day in court with God. I want to see God. I want to bring my case before Him and show Him how He's wrong in His dealings with me. There's an ignorance behind Job in that, but there's also a relationship there. That's the point. We see Job wrestling with God and not letting go of God without even recognizing and knowing that the truth of the matter is that God is not letting go of him. That's the befuddling part. Have you thought about this? This is just strange struck me in the book of Job that in the moment when Job felt God to be at his most absent was according to the book itself when it seems to be that God is paying closest attention. I mean, Job's experience, God is gone. That which I have feared the most has come upon me. What's that fearing the most? That, the, that God is gone and I'm alone. And in that moment, in that existential moment, when it seems like God is gone, what do we see? That God is paying attention the closest. So I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm wrong in this, and and I'd be happy to be challenged and countered. But what I find in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament at least gives me the freedom and the authorization from a biblical standpoint To look at the Job at the beginning of the book of Job and the Job at the middle of the book of Job and say, there's a true Israelite in both cases. In both cases. A man who is both righteous and sinner at the same time. It's a mirror for you and for me. 
And it's an authorization that will be found all throughout the Psalter as well. That you can lament and you can complain and you can talk to God in risky ways. Because God has a Bible for us, ready fit to meet us in all the exigencies of our lives. From the Job 1 and 2 moments, when the suffering comes and you are overwhelmed with a grace that you have never experienced before, and you ride that storm, guess what? That's God's grace at work. Amen. Or in Job 3 through 31, where you are in the depths of despair. In Bunyan's terminology, the slew of despond, and you are stuck. And in that stuck moment, who are you talking to? Where does the Bible tell us to go and to talk? It tells us to talk to God. And that's what Job is doing. The Job of the first part and the Job of the middle of the part, they're different in the way in which they're presented. I get that, and I feel the force of that. But I do believe we see in both of them the righteous sufferer. Someone very close to me recently reminded me in the middle of something this person was going through, you know what? He remembers our frame. This is from the Psalter. He knows that we're just dust. He knows it. Because you know where the book of Job goes. You know where it goes. So Job, the whole time, he, used court, he uses courtroom imagery the most when he's engaging his friends. And he says, I want my day in court with God. I want to bring my case before God. I've got a case that's airtight. I was righteous. I, 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 all the, his friends are saying, You're, you must look at yourself, at your sin patterns. And I, I didn't want to get into this morning, but I don't know if you've ever been troubled by what those friends say to Job, Bildad, Zophar, Eliphaz. I've always been troubled by those guys. You know why? Because... I remember reading what they said many times thinking, that's not really that bad of advice. <laughs> I mean, the world in which I grew up, I can remember right now. I mean, something bad's going on in your life. First thing, check to see what sins are going on in the closet, right? I mean, that's kind of what they're doing. So here we see Job's friends using wisdom because we can find, frankly, some Bible verses in this Proverbs to support some of the things they say. But here we see Job's friends using wisdom in an unwise way. Not taking into account the freedom of God. Not taking into account the complexity of life. And just ramrodding in an inflexible way wisdom categories onto this particular experience with Job and not being sensitive to what's going on. And guess who has to be atoned for by, at the end of the book by Job? Those three friends. They were in the wrong. So Job is asking for his day in court. I want my day in court with God. And guess what? God was happy to oblige at one point. And God shows up to give Job his day in court. And here's the, I don't know, it's the, again, it's the mean potatoes part of this book. Guess what um, Job says in his defense? Have, have you heard a sort of three-point argument? No, you haven't. Job doesn't say one word. God shows up and Job is completely silenced. Because God wants Job to see the freedom that he has in himself to be the creator. Were you there, Job, when I made the foundations of the world? Um, would, if, would you go play catch with Leviathan? I don't know what that is, but it's bad, right? <laughs> would you go play catch with Leviathan? Or, I mean, I've, I've always thought that some of these ancient sea monster figures were... Have you seen these Megalodon shows, you know, on Shark Week? Like, like would you go play with Megalodon? You know, I, I play catch with that shark. Big way. It's just, it's just, that's fun. The ostrich. You ever seen the ostrich, Job? What a silly creature. I made it just for fun. That's why I made it. Were you in the middle of all of that when I did this? And what does Job do? He says, I don't have anything to say. I put my hand over my mouth. I put my hand over my mouth, which is significant. 
Because where's the key offense of Job throughout the book? It's in his mouth. And he covers his mouth. And do you know what God does? And this is what I love about the book of Job. Do you know what God does? He destroys Job and he justifies Job at the same time. He knocks him down, he destroys him, and he builds him up in justifying grace at the same time. That's what we see. So it's significant, I think, when we come into the gospel as the Bible moves on and we see Jesus in the garden. Job is not Jesus, right? He's not Jesus. Job is Job. But Job witnesses in a way to something that we see worked out in Jesus and it's full. And that is Jesus in the garden wrestling with the divine will, wrestling with the freedom of His Father, submitting Himself to it, not my will, but Thine be done. Going to the cross to suffer. Remember what God does. He humbles Job and He exalts Job at the same time. He humbles him and He justifies him. And what do we see at the cross? We see God humbling His Son and then exalting Him and exalting humanity at the same time. That's what we see. Job is, as I've said before, meat and potatoes for the Christian faith. It's meat and potatoes because it does not let us off the hook and it doesn't let God off the hook. There's no pablum here of talking about how bad Satan is. There's no pablum here, but it's God recognizing that your lived life is a life that's lived in the reality of God and His free choice in relation to you. Recognizing, and this is another key point from Job, recognizing that Job never had the big cosmic meta-narrative. He never had it. He never had the story or the answer to his why. We get it as readers. Job never got it in the narrative. But what he got at the end was God humbling him and exalting him at the same time. It's, I mean, I wasn't planning on going this direction. But it's why we need the Eucharist so badly. It's why we need it. What we experienced this morning together. It's why we need it. Because when we go to that rail and we kneel, despite John Knox not liking that, he was wrong, that Scottish reformer, he was wrong. John Knox didn't want people kneeling, that was bad, but I think he was wrong on that. When we go and we kneel, it's a, what's that posture? It's a posture of humility, complete humility, where Christ meets us in that humble posture and gives us His own body and His own blood for the nourishment of our souls. So when we go to the Eucharist rail, it's a kind of Job moment every time we go where we are humbled and we are justified by God's grace in the finished and atoning work of Jesus. Okay, I don't know if we have time. Want to bat this around a little bit? Um, don't ask me to explain the problem of evil. I can't do it. Um, anything you want to bat around? Anything you didn't like? Anything you're angry about? Well, I'll uh, throw in that I, I think Satan does continue through Job's friends that their worldly wisdom, and that's God's charge against them, is you did not come in the name of the Lord, hmm. that you came in the worldly wisdom. And I think we all fall to that uh, dynamic when we either use worldly wisdom or engage in worldly wisdom, hmm. we're quickly sucked in like Job was to hmm. use the to fight worldly wisdom with worldly wisdom. Hmm. But uh, I guess, and I was struck, I re- 
reminded of this when I read Amos a couple days ago in Nicaragua that God says, I sent the Philistines from Crete. I sent the Amorites from Kit. That God does send evil upon us to test us and to see if we will be faithful. Kathy? But only kind of. Well, well, I do agree with what he said because um, you notice that his friends, when they heard of his situation, came and sat with him on the uh, uh, sat with him for seven days, and then after that they started kicking him to the curb. I mean, who who do you know that's going to grieve for seven days and then going to be all right? So I do think that Satan played a part in keeping their minds the way they were. Because if they knew anything at all about their friend, you know, they would not have started in on him right away like they did, you know. I think you make a point, man. That, that is, I mean, I said in other contexts, that, that's Job's friends at his best, at their best, when they sit down quietly. Um, you know, that's, you know, I, I, you know I'm, I'm, all, I'm all left feet and thumbs when it's around people who are in that sort of moment of crisis, you know, knowing what's, I'm all, I just, it's a, it's a, that's a hard moment when people are really hurting knowing what to say and you know maybe there's a good pattern for us in some sense that you know we don't always have to say anything you know that's um that's them at their best but then they start talking like i do too you know and then things go downhill <laughs> how about one more and then we'll call it anybody well uh, can you address the scripture in the bulletin that i know i will see my redeemer oh yeah i was supposed to talk about that wasn't i um i mean that, that's the heart of faith in the middle of Job's complaint, which is what I think, again, you see pattern within the Psalter. That's why I like the Psalms in this regard. I mean, the Psalms are patterned in this way, where you, the lament Psalms, where people complain, complain, complain. And then there's a strong transition, but I know my Redeemer lives. But I know this, that, and the other. But I will trust in your unfailing love. But I will remember your glorious deeds of the past and know that you'll work again in the future. Right. So there is that future-looking hope. And frankly, it is that future-looking hope, and I should have mentioned this and emphasized this, that's really all that Job has. And, I, and can I put it into our confessional creedal language? It's, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. I mean, if you take that away, I mean, it's over. It's over. I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. That is our hope. That is our future hope. And that also means that we may live in this life with certain kinds of issues that have gone on in our lives or experiences that we will never know the extent of what's going on. And the human, it's natural, I think, in human to try to find a justification and an understanding for why. Um, but, you know, that, it just isn't always going to happen, which puts us in the position of hope. Hope. Yeah. All right. You're dismissed. <laughs>